Welcome to the AWS TechCast. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 56 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today is Dean Samuels. Episode 56, it's not really a milestone episode, but these numbers are clocking up given our fortnightly cadence. Dean, been a while since we last talked about infrastructure. Somewhere on social media, I'm led to believe you have a new role. Uh, indeed, I do, uh, Shane, and it's absolutely great to be back uh, on the Tech Chat uh, uh, podcast. Uh, I've actually taken on a new role in a new location. So I'm now the lead architect for ASEAN based in Singapore. So what exactly does a lead architect do at AWS? Well, I'm glad you asked uh, there, Shane. So uh, the purpose of the lead architect is to work with the account solutions architect and the wider account team of our customers to help uh, customers get through some of the challenges that they may be facing uh, along their cloud journey. Um, so as you know, in the fullness of time, we do believe that most organizations will be running uh, a majority of their IT operations uh, in the cloud. And many of our customers are already have already started that journey. But uh, they sometimes fight, fight, face blockers when it comes to, for example, organizational changes, whether it's restructuring their teams, whether it's encouraging a culture of innovation and experimentation, uh, whether it's making sure that they have the right skills and resources in place, whether they're even looking at some type of application modernization. So it's my responsibility with some additional uh, team members to help customers get over that hurdle so that they can continue their cloud journey and really focus on what they do best, which is innovate and iterate on the services, solutions, and products that they provide. Very good. Very in-depth response. Awesome. Great. Well, what have I been doing? I have, as everyone probably knows, I'm an Uber geek. So I'm in the process at home at the moment of building a laser cut panel steel gate with LED strip lighting. Sounds simple enough, but I'm about 20 hours into this, but there is light appearing at the end of the tunnel. Actually, there was light. No pun intended. No pun intended. Actually, there was light appearing last night and it was as awesome as I hoped it would look. Where do you find the time? After hours. Um, <laughs> After hours, Seven, okay. eight o'clock at night, you know, whack some lights on. I did though, Dean, remember the magic rule of measuring twice and cutting once, especially for the custom laser cut steel. I'm more like I measured five times and I definitely measured multiple times last night with a multimeter as I was feeding close to 10 amps of 12 volt DC through quite an expensive PLC, you know, for relays, et cetera. Either way, it's an outlet and I like to think it's all related. So look, pleasantry is over. Let's kick into this show. Now, I was about to say it's near the end of September, but it's hard to say that as we're drifting a week here and there each month as we're doing these fortnightly recordings. So today in this episode of AWS Tech Chat, we're going to pause following our episode on containers and come at you for a raft of short, sharp, but important updates that have occurred in the last month and a half. And based on the time of recording, that's August and September of 2019. Being Tech Chat, we'll cover these at the level you expect, but more importantly, ask the hard so what and why questions. Dean, before we get into some updates, 
and oh, there are updates. Give us a lap of the news. Sure. Um, so as you know, Shane, um, this is a show for builders, and and I do know you know this very well. You've definitely been carrying the flag um, for this uh, for this type of uh, platform to share information. Uh, we believe that uh, there hasn't been a better time to be a builder with the democratization of IT, uh, whether it's uh, moving from uh, automation to autonomous IT operations, otherwise known as uh, AI ops, uh, whether it's uh, putting the hands on machine learning into the uh, everyday developers, uh, as mentioned, it's just never been a better time to build a to be a builder. And uh, to help with the uh, our builder's journey, um, we do provide a lot of uh, 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 events or, or uh, learning experiences that our customers and our builders can actually attend. Um, and so there's uh, plenty of events coming up to uh, reinvent, obviously, our annual marquee event uh, that we're holding at the end of the year. Um, and so I would actually recommend to uh, our, our customers and listeners to search AWS events in your favorite search engine. And if there actually isn't something available in your local geography, there is going to be either something online or even an on-demand session. Yeah, look, speaking of on-demand sessions, some of them go really, really deep. You know, level 400 sessions, including topics such as EventBridge. So again, take a look at it. Yes, absolutely. And as uh, our listeners do know, we uh, run our uh, summit series across the, across the globe with a majority of the cities that uh, we uh, we operate in having had their summits already. But of course, there's still more to go. We actually have a public sector summit in Singapore on the 24th and 25th of September. Will the listeners find you out and about, maybe presenting, maybe a selfie opportunity? Uh, I think we'll have to uh, keep the listeners on the toes. Uh, stay, stay tuned. Uh, we'll actually have our uh, social media um, uh, handles uh, posted in the notes. And so uh, listeners can actually tune in and, and see where both you and I might be uh, there, Shane. But uh, definitely will be able to see me around the, uh, around the region here. Awesome. So we also do have uh, an upcoming upcoming summit in Shenzhen in uh, China on the September 27th, uh, Switzerland on October the 2nd, and Toronto in, of course, Canada on October 3rd. So if you are, are going to be in one of those areas, make sure to check it out, sign up, register, uh, because it is a great learning experience to not only learn about uh, technology, but how our customers and partners are actually applying those uh, technologies to address real-world problems. Yeah, awesome. So look, just to recap, four summits still late in this cycle but that's it until the big dance which is reinvent running from december 2nd to december 6th and if you are going i hope you've secured your tickets by now and accommodation uh will you be going Shane? i don't know guess we'll find out yes i guess it'll be one of those uh, additional uh, airs of mystery mm. uh let's talk a little bit about maybe the regions um i remember listening to your latest or your, sorry your last tech chat Shane, and you mentioned i believe it was the first one in a while it might have been the first one that you've been involved in where you actually didn't have any new announcements regarding global infrastructure rollout rollouts whether it was for regions or edge locations is that right that is absolutely correct well, uh, I'm happy to tell you, Shane, that uh, that's actually short-lived because whilst we still are at 22 regions with the recent addition of Bahrain um, and also 69 availability zones, our edge locations has actually increased um, since you uh, last uh, hosted the, te the tech chat. We actually now have a total of 190 uh, edge locations around the globe. Yeah, look, it still feels like I can remember when we had less than 100 edge locations, Dean. And look, given your tender, tell me, you know, do you remember the count when you started many moons ago? 
Yeah, so uh, I've actually been at Amazon Web Services for just under eight years ago, eight years now, sorry. So 2012 was when I started. And so for those who are long timers with the AWS platform, remembering back to 2012, we actually only had about six or seven uh, regions available at that time. And in fact, uh, I was based in Sydney, Australia. Uh, we didn't actually have any infrastructure in Australia at that time at all, whether it was regions, uh, availability zones, of course, uh, but even edge locations as well. But Later on in that year, after I joined, fortunately, fortunately, we were able to launch the Sydney region. Uh, it was an interesting time because uh, way back then, we only had about 20 services and, like I mentioned, about six or seven regions around the globe. So to see us grow to over 180 plus services today with, of course, 22 regions, 69 availability zones, 190 edge locations, uh, it's just been a phenomenal growth for us over even just the last uh, eight years. Awesome. All right. So we added some extra edge locations in the in the last few weeks. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, additional edge locations since your last tech chat that we've added, uh, Shane, is uh, the first in Lisbon, Portugal. It's actually our first edge location in this country. And so what that means is with this new edge location, viewers in Portugal will now see up to a 60% improvement in latency when accessing content through CloudFront. And uh, as we continue to, uh, to roll out infrastructure into the Middle East, we've actually expanded with a first edge location in Manama, Bahrain as well. And so that's why we now have CloudFront at 190 points of presence in 72 cities across 33 countries. So uh, I do like giving you pop quizzes, uh, quizzes Shane, and uh, I mentioned we have uh, CloudFront presence in 33 countries. But do you know how many countries there are actually in the world? Ooh, I could be in trouble here. Obviously, you know, at school, math and science won my heart. I'm going to say I've absolutely got no idea, but I'm going to guess something like 150. Well, obviously, geography didn't uh, win your heart there, Shane, because it's actually uh, over 190 uh, countries that are uh, around the globe. And the uh, fun fact for you is uh, AWS does operate in, across uh, over 190 countries as well. And we have uh, millions of active customers leveraging the platform every month. Awesome. All right. So geography 101 done, but I guess you're saying there's still room for expansion still. And I'm sure Andy, Jassy and co are probably one step ahead in planning out our next geographic expansion. We've actually, as you know, uh, announced uh, three additional regions that will be coming in the near future. And of course, our growth doesn't stop there as we start to build our customer base and as well as customer demand, uh, we'll be looking at rolling out additional infrastructure in the near future. Awesome. Okay. News done. Let's get straight into this. Dean, IP address exhaustion is a thing. Actually, to be more specific, I'm talking IPv4 here. Standards like IPv6 are fast replacing IPv4 in the LTE space. And NAT64, which converts IPv6 into IPv4, have helped extend this precious resource. But they, being IPv4 addresses, are still in short supply. Now, if you do a quick search in your favorite search engine, You'll see there are numerous websites that exist that will allow you to buy site arrangers, you know, from a slash 24, even down to slash 16s, depending on how deep your pockets are. Another trend these days is SSL. It's not a nice to have. It's pretty much the minimum expectation and the ticket to entry for any website. Some browsers may even punish owners by calling out websites that aren't secure. But SSL slash TLS has a minimum barrier to entry. Other than a certificate, you require a unique IP address because you can't use HTTP host headers in your web server load balancer when using SSL. So when you have websites with SSL, they require that unique IP address having a one-to-one -one mapping between a website and the IP address rather than a one-to-many relationship 
you know, which will allow you to run hundreds or maybe even thousands of sites off the same IP with just HTTP. Uh, so as you know, Shane, the only constant is change. Uh, the industry saw this as a problem and we ac- and they actually released a technology called SNI or Server Name Indicator to combat this, allowing you to run a, a, run a single IP for multiple SSL sites. Yeah, so let's dive a little bit deeper into SNI. So SNI is an extension to the TLS networking protocol by which a client indicates which host name it's attempting to connect to at the start of the handshaking process, you know, similar to how host headers will work. How this helps address the problem is it allows the server to present multiple certificates on the same IP address and TCP port number, and hence allows multiple secure websites to be served by the same IP address without requiring all those sites to use the same certificate. It is the conceptual equivalent to HTTP 1.1 name-based virtual hosting but for HTTPS. In its early days, it required a modern browser, but SNI has become a widely accepted standard. Like give or take, since about the IE8 days, don't quote me here, everything today understands SNI. So what about mobile devices like mobile phones and tablet chain? Does that also apply and support SNI? They absolutely do today, but earlier versions of Android and I'm sure maybe iOS may have also had issues understanding SNI. Right, so your modern devices would support it then. Yeah, That's great. absolutely. So look, actually, Dean, I was working for an organization and we decided not to move down the SNI path given older browsers, e.g. IE6 would not know what to do. But that was in 2010, so it's not really a valid concern today in 2019. So Dean, I think I've level set this and dragged this out long enough. What's the update here? So uh, launched just last week, I'm happy to say, Shane, is uh, we actually announced support for multiple TLS certificates on network load balances using server name name indicator or SNI. And so you can actually now host multiple secure applications, each with its own TLS certificate on a single load balancer listener. Yeah, look, there's a few benefits here. So look, density, as we alluded to before, you know, allowing you to drive down the cost as you can run a denser setup. You can have one NLB to provide SSL and TLS termination for multiple websites. Another way to look at this, it will be able to simplify management. But inversely, this is also going to increase your blast radius by leveraging one NLB. So it's not all beer and Skittles, but what it is, is another tool and another lever that you can pull in your AWS experience. Uh, uh, Shane, I like beer and Skittles, but I get your point here. Uh, so uh, prior to this launch, uh, network load balancers supported only one certificate per TLS listener, and you had to use wildcard multi- or multi-domain SAN, which is a subject alternative name certificate to host multiple secure applications behind the same load balancer. The potential security risk with wildcard certificates and the operational overhead of managing multi-domain certificates presented its own challenges. Yeah, look, I like how you touched on, on the security lens here. Look, wildcards are a bit of a risk. As we know, you know, lose that certificate and that private key and your only options is really a CRL or certificate revocation list. And a SAN certificate or subject alternative names, whilst they aren't as bad as wildcards, you can quickly look at the common name to see what names the certificate will cover. And really, you know, we preach least privilege, role-based access control, and so on. And disclosing more information than you need to at the SSL TLS layers is really less than ideal. Yeah, that's right. And with SNI support, you can now associate those multiple certificates with a listener and it allows each secure application behind a load balancer to use its own certificate. And unlike the issues we just spoke through above, uh, SNI provides a one-to-one mapping between site and certificate, but allows you to perform name-based virtual hosting over SSL. And so with this update, network load balancers also support a smart certificate selection algorithm with SNI. 
So if the host name indicated by a client matches multiple certificates, the load balancer determines the best certificate to use based on multiple factors, including the client TLS capabilities. Uh, furthermore, SNI is actually integrated with AWS Certificate Manager, or ACM, and AWS Identity and Access Management, IAM, for certificate management. You can associate up to 25 certificates to a load balancer in addition to a default certificate per listener. Yeah, look, that is pretty awesome. And look, just on the smart selection, if there are multiple matches on the certificate path, certificate selection is based on the following criteria in the following order. So public key algorithm, we're going to prefer ECDSA over RSA. The hashing algorithm, we're going to prefer SHA over MD5. The key length, we prefer the largest and the validity period, you know, how long the certificate's got to run. Check out the documentation for more information. Now, in terms of getting started with this, it's the same process as assigning any certificate. And if your vernacular covers CSRs or certificate signing requests and private keys, I have no doubt you will be fine. Though, if you want to see a demo of this, head over to http exampleloadbalancer.com, which is a site ran by AWS, and you can actually walk through a demo of this. Lastly, just remember, Dean stated this is for NLBs. So SNR, whilst being now available for network load balancers, is not available on our other load balancing offerings, that being the application and elastic load balancer. And the best thing about this, uh, Shane, is the update is actually available in all places to where network load balancers are available. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So Dean, paddock to plate, you know, the ability to track items through the supply chain, ledger verification and so on are fast becoming not just a knife to have, but, you know, they're becoming required for businesses in today's modern world. You know, today things are about trust. How do consumers validate trust? I uh, really like the uh, supply chain reference there and the paddock to plate, my favorite topic, food. Uh, but uh, Shane, of course, you do know this is tech chat. You, you know that, right? I do. I also like food too. Right. Okay. So maybe I'll turn this ship around, unfortunately. Maybe we can look uh, look at doing a food-based uh, tech chat in a, in a future episode. But uh, I wanted to get down into the nitty-gritty of some, uh, some cool technology and what I think Shane is actually alluding to. Um, on September 10th, we actually announced general availability of Amazon QLDB, which is a fully managed ledger database that provides a transparent, immutable, and cryptographically verifiable transaction log owned by a central trust authority. Amazon QLDB is a new class of database that eliminates the need to engage in the complex development effort of building your own ledger-like applications. So wait a second. So we've got relational, non-relational, time series, graph, uh, probably missed another one, uh, document databases, and now we have another? Yeah. Absolutely. Key value store as well. And uh, and at the end of the day, Shane, it, it's really about uh, making sure that we uh, provide the right tool for the right job, as they say. Uh, neither of us here are what you would call classically schooled developers. Uh, we both know enough TSQL to be dangerous, I'm sure. And because QLDB is, has familiar SQL-like query language and an API, the learning curve isn't as high as one would expect. The point to get across here with QLDB is your data's change history is immutable. It cannot be altered or deleted. And using cryptography, you can easily verify there have been no unintended modifications to your application's data. The transaction log is immutable, and this is known as a journal that tracks each application data change and maintains a complete and verifiable history of changes over time. So Dean, when I was researching this for the show, there was a lot of concepts that were familiar and a lot was not familiar. Sure, it is SQL, party QL, but we'll get to that soon. 
With everything in AWS as an API, and this is no different. Now the API for QLDB allows you to cryptographically verify that the history is accurate and legitimate. It has more features and you can find those in the docket. This is no relational database here. So there are a few core concepts we need to get our heads over. Run us through them, Dean. Absolutely, Shane. So you mentioned a few terms earlier, and one of those was the ledger. So a QLDB ledger consists of a set of QLDB tables and a journal that maintains the complete immutable history of changes to the tables. Ledgers are named and can be tagged. Uh, I think mentioned, you mentioned before early, earlier about journal as well. And so a journal consists of a sequence of blocks, each cryptographically chained to the previous block so that changes can be verified. Uh, blocks in turn contain the actual changes that were made to the tables, index for efficient retrieval. This append-only model ensures that previous data cannot be edited or deleted and makes the ledgers, hence, immutable. QLDB allows you to export all or part of a journal to S3. Then we also have the concept of table. Uh, tables exist within a ledger and contain a collection of document revisions. Tables support optional indexes on document fields. The indexes can be improved performance for queries that can make use of the e equality predicate. And then finally, Shane, we've got documents. And so documents exist within these tables and must be in Amazon ION form. ION is a superset of JSON that adds additional data types, type annotations, and comments. QLDB supports documents that contain nested JSON elements and gives you the ability to write queries that reference and include these elements. Uh, documents need not conform to any particular schema, giving you, the, giving you the flexibility to build applications that can easily adapt to changes. Yeah, look, it's familiar, but obviously, you know, there are a few concepts that we need to get our head around. So look, thanks for that, Dean. Now, I mentioned Party QL before. Now, if you aren't familiar with it, and I wasn't until a few days prior, it's a new open standard query language that supports a SQL compatible access to relational semi-structured and nested data while remaining independent of any particular data source. It's being pitched as the query language for all of your data. The root of the problem is that data is typically spread across a combination of relational databases, non-relational data stores, and data lakes. And I'm sure we can all testify to that. Some data might be highly structured and stored in SQL databases or maybe data warehouses. Other data may be stored in NoSQL engines, you know, key value stores, graph databases, ledger databases, and so on. You know, data may also reside in a data lake stored in formats that may lack a schema or may involve nesting or multiple values, you know, e.g. Parquet and JSON. Every different type and flavor of data store must suit a particular use case, but it also comes with its own query language. And the result is really, you know, tight coupling between the query language and the format in which data is stored. Yeah, and as any uh, good architect or engineer worth their weight, Shane, would uh, know, tight coupling, of course, is bad as it actually restricts freedom and options. And this is not just in query languages, but in IT in general. Exactly, and that's the problem with tight coupling. If you want to change your data to another format or change a database engine you use to access or process the data, which is you know not that uncommon in the data lake world, or change a location of your data, you may also need to change your application and its queries. Now, you know, that requires dev effort, people cost money, takes time, etc. And this is a very large obstacle to the agility and flexibility needed to effectively use data lakes. So that, I guess you could say, is the problem statement that PartyQL is trying to solve. How successful it will be, well, only time will tell. But as an organization, it's something that we, Amazon, are backing. So 
Whilst Amazon developed an open source PartyQL, it's available under the Apache 2 license so that everyone can participate and contribute. PartyQL is a SQL compatible query language that makes it easy and efficient to query data, regardless of where and in what format it's stored. As long as your query engine supports PartyQL, you can process structured data from relational databases, both transactional and analytical, semi-structured and nested data in open data formats such as Amazon S3, and even schema-less data in NoSQL or document databases that allow different attributes for different rows. Engines that support PartyQL today include Redshift Spectrum, S3 Select, Glacier Select, EMR as it pushes down PartyQL to S3 Select, and Couchbase is looking to support PartyQL in their Couchbase server. But more importantly, in the context of QLDB, QLDB has adopted PartyQL as its query language. Right, and so if you want to get started with PartyQL, well, it requires a JVM or a Java virtual machine to be installed on your uh, machine, and you can run PartyQL on Windows, Mac, and Linux flavors. Uh, the query language, as mentioned, is very SQL-like, and you end up with PartyQL CLI on your machine. Back to the QLDB after that segue there, let's go through and dispel a few myths. Now, I often hear, starting with QLDB and blockchain in the same context, are they the same? Now, look, Amazon QLDB is not a blockchain or distributed ledger technology. Blockchain and distributed ledger technologies focus on solving problems of a decentralized applications involving multiple parties where there can be no single entity that owns the application and the parties do not necessarily trust each other fully. On the other hand, QLDB is a ledger database purpose-built for customers who need to maintain a complete and verifiable history of data changes in an application that they own. And that's the important part here. So I'll repeat it again. It's you know what they own versus a decentralized matter. Amazon QLDB offers history, immutability, verifiability, combined with the familiarity, scalability, and ease of use of a fully managed AWS database. If your application requires decentralization and involves multiple untrusted parties, a blockchain solution may be more appropriate. Though, if your application requires a complete and verifiable history of all application data changes, doesn't involve multiple parties, Amazon QLDB is a great fit. Now, Dean, obviously, We've had a play with QLDB, but explain how one deploys and operates. Absolutely, and uh, it was interesting you listening to you talk about the iddies uh, uh, above the immutability, the verifiability, the familiarity. I what can't even say it myself and scalability. Try and say say that five times fast, but uh, it is important uh, to to understand about uh, what are some of the, uh, the the features that it does uh, support and. Uh, and so just like with many of our offerings, this is actually serverless. Uh, and what that means is from a user's perspective with Amazon QLDB, you don't have to worry about provisioning capacity or configuring read and write limits. You create a ledger, you define your tables and QLDB automatically scales to support the demands of your application. Obviously, this needs to be durable, after all, cryptographically verifiable as well. So when you instantiate a QLDB, uh, your ledger is deployed across multiple AZs with multiple copies per AZ. Uh, with QLDB, a write is acknowledged only after being written to a durable storage in multiple AZs, and hence QLDB is strongly durable. Awesome. And like with all AWS products we release, you know, we release and we iterate. And one thing I need to call out that I found a little bit odd during my brief play of QLDB, that it does not support a backup and restore feature as of now. At present, an export to S3 functionality is available. So using this functionality, you can export the contents of your QLDB journal to S3, but you cannot restore your journal today. Watch your space as we're actively working on it. 
Uh, as we say, we release products that are often MVP, uh, minimal viable product, but as we like to say, minimal lovable products, and iterate, and of course, iterate very fast. Uh, Amazon QLDB is available today in US East Ohio, US East North Virginia, US West Oregon, uh, Asia Pacific Tokyo, and in Europe Island region, with additional regions coming soon. Now, Shane, I know you are a fan of Elasticsearch and have spoken about it many times in the past, and I've definitely learned a lot, a lot listening to you talk about it. Look, absolutely love it, and I do love a good Kibana dashboard for my various wares out there. Yeah, I seem to think you probably just like saying the word Kibana. That's uh, pretty tasty. That's quite interesting. Make me think of food. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is actually not a new service or feature, but a new solution. For those who aren't aware, we have solutions at AWS. AWS Solutions offerings are available on the AWS Solutions webpage, where customers can browse solutions by product, category, or industry to find AWS vetted, automated turnkey reference implementations that address specific business needs. And what I wanted to talk about is a solution that AWS have actually just released from the AWS Solutions team, which of course is now available on the AWS Solutions webpage. Uh, the solution is called Analyzing Text with Amazon Elasticsearch Service and Amazon Comprehend. And it does just that. Uh, this solution is an automated reference implementation that deploys a cost-effective end-to-end solution for extracting meaningful insights from unstructured data, such as customer calls, support tickets, and online customer feedback. Yeah, look, this is a pretty big wish for many organizations, you know, some that I've personally dealt with. You know, they may have a call center, but how does one extract the meaningful insights from these calls? So you can use Comprehend by itself, but you need to build a lot of the workflow out from your IVR and so on. That's the idea of solutions here. The solution uses Comprehend, a natural language processing service that uses machine learning for text analysis. And Amazon Elasticsearch service or Amazon ES for indexing and analyzing unstructured text. The solution also creates a pre-configured Kibana dashboard for visualization or extracted of extracted entities, key phrases, syntax, and sentiment from uploaded documentation. Yeah, look, so solutions are just that. They're solutions. You know, it's not to say you can't build them yourself, but with solutions, they are based on CloudFormation, you know, our declarative syntax language. So you can adjust and tweak if need be. Breaking the solution down, it's really a lot of Lambda glue that wraps around API Gateway in a proxy pass-through mode that interacts with Elasticsearch and Comprehend, with API Gateway being the front door for user interaction. Yeah, it's a, it's a quick update but there, but worth calling out, especially for the wider AWS Solutions program. So I highly recommend our listeners go and check it out. Um, if you are in the market for free, uh, excluding the AWS resources consumed, of course, um, a free solution for sentiment analysis with visualization. And as Shane mentioned, this is cloud formation. So if it doesn't meet your needs, it may be a good starting point to pivot from. Mm, okay, one here for you, Dean. I promise I didn't save this up because I knew you were coming along today. Obviously, you know, we're all a little bit peculiar. There was a time, probably when I had less children, that I actually ran MRTG and NetFlow, not only for my old business, but for my house. I thought it was pretty cool being able to graph all my devices in my house via SNMP. You know, I had a Cisco 2960 post switch, a few APs at that stage. And look, whilst I don't look at this on a daily basis, it comes in handy every now and then. You know, it's telemetry that my devices are emitting. And the equivalent of this within AWS, of course, is our VPC flow logs. 
Shane, you're saying all the words I love, SNMP and telemetry and MRTG and all those uh, uh, technologies I have fond memory of. But uh, yeah, VPC uh, flow logs are uh, you know, related to an awesome service uh, that we uh, released and uh, announced many moons ago with uh, VPC, uh, obviously a critical component of most of our uh uh, customers uh, AWS uh, deployments and the VPC flow logs has provided some initial uh, uh, insights and visibility uh, to our customers um, and uh, since we launched VPC flow logs in 2015 people have been using it for a variety of use cases like troubleshooting uh, connectivity issues across your VPCs uh, intrusion detection anomaly detection or archival for compliance purposes but until mid-September of tw uh, 2019 provided information that included source IP, source port, destination IP, destination port, action, in other words, an accept or reject, and status, so six fields. Not bad, and while this information was sufficient to understand most flows, it required additional computation and a lookup to match IP addresses to maybe an instance ID or to guess the directionality of the flow you know, and come to meaningful conclusions. But that's where things now change. Uh, what's different in this update is when you create a new VPC flow log, in addition to the existing fields I mentioned earlier, you can now choose to add the following metadata. Uh, there's VPC ID, uh, which is the ID of the VPC containing the source elastic network interface or ENI. Uh, it includes the subnet ID, the ID of the subnet containing the source ENI, uh, the instance ID, the Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud or EC2 instance ID of the instance associated with the source interface. Uh, when the ENI is actually placed by AWS services, for example, AWS Private Link, NAT Gateway, Network Load Balancer, uh, this will actually just be a, uh, a dash or basically it's not uh, applicable. Uh, you also have TCP flags, the bit mask for TCP flags observed within the aggregation period. Uh, uh, a whole bunch of hex that I won't actually call out uh, here, but essentially some additional information regarding those packets that are coming through. And what it does is it allows us to understand who initiated or terminated the connection. Uh, TCP uses a three-way handshake to establish a connection. The connecting machine sends a SYN packet to the destination. The destination replies with a SYN ACK. And finally, the connecting machine sends a ACK or acknowledgement. In the flow logs, the handshake is shown as two lines with TCP flags of two, eight, uh, two SYNs, 18 SYN ACKs. Uh, ACK, is reported by, ACK is reported only when it is accompanied with SYN. Otherwise, it would be too much noise for you to filter out. So a lot of content and information there. Uh, three other fields that are included is uh, type, uh, the type of traffic, IPv4, IPv6, or elastic fabric adapter. And then finally, the uh, packet uh, source address uh, and the packet destination uh, address. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I actually found interesting as you were talking through these, Dean, the type of traffic, IPv4, IPv6, or EFA elastic fabric adapter. Maybe someone will explain them to me or maybe I'll look it up. You know, how you've got IPv4, IPv6, I get that. How does EFA actually differ? Maybe someone will let me know. Maybe a topic for a future uh, session, uh, tech chat session. Maybe. Look, flow logs, just as they did before, will appear in your S3 bucket, but VPC flow logs does not capture real-time log streams for your network interfaces. So it may take several minutes to begin collecting and publishing data to chosen destination. Your logs will eventually be available in on S3 at you know S3, bucket name, AWS logs, the account ID, VPC flow logs, region, year, month, day. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great update here, and I think it's something that's been very useful for our our listeners just to provide further insights into the traffic um, and data flows that's actually happening happening across their uh, VPC. It's really one that helps get the job done, providing that visibility and and especially aid in debugging. Um, so Shane, last tech chat was quite interesting because it was a special one focused on containers, uh, and it, it definitely is an area that I'm starting to develop my skills in uh, more and more. And, and that session really helped uh, uh, me focus on specific uh, things. Um, the updates uh, actually do keep rolling on in the container bandwagon, right? Yeah, absolutely, and it's great to hear you listening, Dean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's definitely one of my learning mechanisms. And and I, I just wanted to call out uh, two quick updates uh, to end the show regarding uh, containers. Uh, update one is around EKS. Uh, Amazon EKS now allows you to assign IAM permissions to Kubernetes service accounts. And so this gives you fine-grained pod-level access control when running clusters with multiple co-located services. Previously, when running a Kubernetes cluster on AWS, you could only associate IAM roles to an EC2 node in the cluster, and every pod that ran on the node inherited the same IAM role. This made it very hard to run pods with different access control requirements on the same set of nodes. Now, Amazon EKS allows you to assign a unique IAM role to a service account that can be used by individual pods running on your Kubernetes cluster. This gives you fine-grained control over the permission sets for each individual pod that you run. Uh, the IAM role can control access to other containerized services, AWS resources external to the cluster, such as databases and secrets, or even third-party services and applications running outside of AWS. Uh, you, can you can securely run multiple different services on the same set of nodes, making it much easier to optimize for costs and availability for the cluster. Second update here is still with EKS. So, you know, lots of EKS updates at the moment and a pretty minor one here. So we've had a version increment as now EKS supports Kubernetes version 1.14.6 for all clusters. So Kubernetes is rapidly evolving. You know, plenty of updates on tech chat. Kubernetes is rapidly evolving. And with the frequent feature releases and bug fixes, version 1.14.6 includes stable support for durable local storage management and pod priority, as well as the beta launch of PID limiting. See the change logs for Kube in for more details. And look, just on versions, we spoke about Lambda deprecation a few episodes back. Just note that Amazon EKS supports mirrors the Kubernetes community by providing full support for the three most recent releases. So that's Kubernetes 1.11, 1.12, and 1.13, and now 1.14 is fully supported. So new clusters can be started using any of these releases. However, given Kubernetes' quarterly release cycle, it's critical that all customers have an ongoing upgrade plan. So by mid-September, Kubernetes version 1.11 is going to be deprecated in EKS and will no longer be supported on November 4th, 2019. So on this day, you'll no longer be able to create new 1.11 clusters and all EKS clusters running Kubernetes versions 1.11 will be updated to the latest available platform version, so Kubernetes version 1.112. We recommend customers upgrade existing 1.11 or 1.12 customers and worker nodes to at least 1.13 as soon as practical. So look, in summary, please, 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 if you are using higher order services such as Lambda, such as EKS, see the version lifecycle policies in our documentation.
And uh, lastly, just to remind listeners, if you are running containers and you, if you haven't leveraged CloudWatch Container Insights, you should be. It's still pretty new, and CloudWatch can now, but CloudWatch can now summarize the performance and health of their Amazon Elastic Container Service, AWS Fargate, Amazon Elastic Container Service for Kubernetes, and Kubernetes clusters by pod, node, namespace, task, container, and service. Dean, on that note, I think it's a wrap. We are out of time. So today we covered a round of updates that occurred in the month of August and September in the year 2019. Yeah, we dug deep and uh, uh, started to show uh, with started the show with an announcement around uh, uh, support for multiple TLS certificates on network load balancers using server name indicators or SNI. Uh, you can now host multiple secure applications, each with its own TLS certificate on a single load balancer listener. Just a reminder, that's only for NLBs at the moment. Amazon QLDB is now GA. It's a fully managed ledger database that provides a transparent, immutable, and cryptographically verifiable transaction log owned by a central trusted authority. We then spoke about a recently announced AWS solution that uses Comprehend and Amazon Elasticsearch for indexing and analyzing unstructured text. This reference implementation is in the form of CloudFormation and deploys a cost-effective end-to-end solution for extracting meaningful insights from unstructured data, such as customer calls, support tickets, and online customer feedback. Plus, it has a tasty Kibana dashboard to provide visualizations. Uh, yeah, tasty indeed. Uh, and of course, I covered a VPC flow log update in addition to existing fields. You can now choose to add in additional metadata, which will help provide more meaning- meaningful conclusions. And look, to close the show out, we covered two updates for EKS. EKS now allows you to assign IAM permissions to Kubernetes service accounts. You know, this gives you fine-grained pod-level access control when running clusters with multiple co-located services. And secondly, we just released one. 1.14.6 for EKS, but ensure you understand the EKS support policy as we only support the last three Kubernetes releases. Dean, my friend, as usual, great to have you back on the airways with me. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun indeed, and uh, I was very happy to be here. Um, I'm really uh, thankful that you saved some of the uh, topics which are my area of interest uh, for me uh, when I joined you, rejoined you as a co-host. Totally did it on purpose, Dean. So look... <laughs> Listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. Join us again in a few weeks, time to which we'll be back with a deep dive session of your choosing. And until next time, bye for now. Bye-bye. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com